What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals from around the world. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Great to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast. And today we travel over to London, over the pond, as we like to say here in the U.S., and uh, meet with my friend Mark Wilde, who's CEO of Crossrail in London, the United Kingdom. Mark, thank you so much for being a guest with us today on the Transit Unplugged podcast. Uh, Delighted to be here, Paul. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, Mark and I got to know each other maybe five years ago uh, when I was at the MTA in Baltimore and I was speaking at some conference in London and Mark was there. What were you doing back then, Mark? Do you remember? Uh, I was running the Tube. So I've had quite an interesting history, but I was the managing director of London Underground, which was a great job, you know, before I came. That's good. Well, thank you for being with us today. What you're doing now is phenomenal. The work you're doing is, is probably the biggest capital project in Europe when it comes to public transportation, one of the largest ones in the world. Um, so uh, basically, why don't you kind of tell us what's going on over there? Give us give us the lay of the land. So this show is airing. I'm recording it just a couple of days before it's going to air on the 30th. What's happening in London right now and how's transportation working? And then we'll get into what you're doing. Yeah, so I mean, most people would know London's a large city, you know, 8.8 million people. And pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic, you know, the transit system is fundamental, you know, and everybody, I think, understand the Tube, London Underground, the world's oldest uh, mass transit system, but also, you know, a very extensive bus network. I think there are 9,000 buses in London, a big rail network, both um, a suburban rail network and heavy you know, intercity railways connecting into London, and of course, tramways as well, so, and rivers, and latterly scooter hire as well. So, you know, London's a, a diverse city, and it's got a, a rich transit um, connectivity. It's, of course, managed by Transport for London, which actually report, reports to the Mayor of London, recently re-elected Sadiq Khan as Mayor of London for his second term, and the Transit Authority, uh, Transport for London, is the integrator. It, it is some direct labour. It, you know, it runs the tube, and we have 25,000 people working in the tube. And it also runs concessions for buses, trams, uh, railways as well. The boss of Transport for London is Andy Byford, well-known to listeners of this, previously of Toronto, Sydney, and New York, of course. And it, it's just fantastic to have Andy back in London running Transport for London. Yeah, you guys I guess are lucky. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah. Lucky to get him back. He's the best. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Don't tell him too much, but yeah, he is. And I've, known Andy, I've known Andy for years, and he's just his energy is fantastic, you know. So it's great to have Andy back in London. And we need it because, like every other transport system, the pandemic really reduced our ridership. And Transport for London, I think uniquely has the most least reliance on government support, you know, the most reliance on the fare books. So when the transit volumes dropped, as they did in the pandemic, Transport for London had a really, really tough time and, you know, has been in negotiations with the government here to get support. Um, things are improving, you know, we're coming through the pandemic. I think we're up to 40 or 50% of ridership now, but still a big problem for Transport for London going forward, of course. 
So that's it in, in summary, Paul. We um, that's a great summary, you know, man. That's very helpful. Yeah. So uh, let me put it in context for our listeners. So as most folks know, as Mark just said, you've got um, basically directly operated rail, right? And then contracted out buses is what they do mostly in London. Yeah, yeah. There's kind of three platforms really. The uh, the tube is um, vertically integrated operator. You know, ten tube lines, twenty five thousand people, vertically integrated. Working for also, the authority, right? Those employees all yeah, work working in the authority. Yeah, in the authority. Transport for London was created in two thousand and one, and the tube was integrated around that time, a little bit later, but around that time. So the tubes in Transport for London. The other thing in Transport for London is the surface network, which is um, concessions of bus routes. All the bus routes in London are concessions. And then the third operating platform are concessions for um, suburban railways, tramways, river riverboat services. Okay. So really, um, surface transport buses, trains that are concession, but the, the big bit of Transport for London is, is the tube. But we integrate. The key thing about Transport for London that I always really liked I was in Melbourne running public transport for Victoria, and we always looked up to Transport for London as somebody you can integrate. And I think that that's the key thing. The, the key attribute of Transport for London is its ability to coordinate all of the transport offerings from, from roads all the way through to cycle hire, right the way through to, to mass transit tube system. So I, I still think that's a good model. And what about network rail? Where does that fit in? Well, network rail bring Big, uh, big trends, you know, big intercity trends, interterminuses in in London, in the bit like in Paris, you know, in the circumference of London. If you can think of it as a circle, uh, there are about seven or eight major termini of network rail bringing intercity services in, and within London itself, separate to TfL, there is quite extensive suburban railways. And before before the pandemic, actually, there was a lot of discussion in the UK about how national rail should be adjusted. And actually, interestingly, just in the past four or five weeks, it has been um, discussed with the government of the UK that National Rail will drift more towards a TfL model where the, the franchises, which you know, the UK has got a heavily franchised system on the operations, the franchises will drift towards a more concession um, approach. Uh, still have a wheel rail separation, but uh, the concessions will be much more like TfL users. And TfL concessions, as most people will know, I think, put the customer at the heart of it rather than focus on the fare box risk. So, yeah, a lot of changes here. Paul. Yeah. And, um, yeah. We've had Sir Peter Hendy on, great guy, and um, mm. uh, another one of the iconic leaders. You know, one, one more comment before we get into your history is uh, – so many, uh, it's like London is like, uh, I guess, the diaspora from the Commonwealth has gone out to places like, uh, you know, here in Toronto, where my buddy Phil Verster, uh, he used to run Scott Rail and Irish Rail, you know, and then you, you go down to Australia with my friends down there that are running a bunch of stuff, Howard Collins and other folks. They all came from, they all started together. They're all buddies back in the day. And they kind of just like spread out throughout the Commonwealth. I think it's awesome that you, that TFL has generated like a class of senior leaders uh, for the world's leading transit systems. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, the dysphoria, I love, I love that. And uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I worked in the tube back in the late, late 90s. So I think, interestingly, what the UK hasn't done, unlike France with Keolis and Transdev, UK really doesn't have really much of a history of exporting operators 
particularly to other jurisdictions. I guess there was there was kind of first group, but general generally we've exported our talent rather than the actual operations. Uh, yeah, of things. that's funny. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, I, I think it goes back to actually that uh, London Transport LT was one of the world's first integrated transit authorities uh, way back, you know, in Second World War sort of time before then. So I guess it's always been a history in London of integration of transit. And I think that there's something in that, you know, and yeah. other cities kind of needed that integration and coordination as well. That's interesting. So let's talk about you a little bit, Mark, uh, and your history. Now that we've kind of set the stage, tell us about your career, how you ended up as you know running the tube, probably the most iconic uh, you know, subway system in the world, and then um, and what you're doing now. Yeah, well, I'm an engineer, um, but I started in the power engineering world. Uh, I come from the northeast of England, so kind of coal mining, uh, working class sort of area. So I grew up in the electricity industry. But I, I drifted into the railways in the kind of mid-1990s. Uh, big, big upgrade of the railways in the mid-90s. You know, the Tube had a big upgrade. The National Rail had a big upgrade. Around that time, patronage, if you look at the if you look at kind of um, ridership in the UK, kind of around early 90s, there was a real big pickup. And that's a lot of work required for infrastructure. So I kind of drifted into the railways, the Underground and National Rail in the mid to late 90s. And I guess I'm a project person at heart, but I've had an interesting career. I I went to work for Westinghouse Signals and ended up running Westinghouse Signals, which at that time was the biggest signaling company in the world. And that was my kind of entry into railways and signaling systems, did all sorts of interesting stuff and GOA4, a lot of kind of moving block, a lot of conventional signaling as well all around the world. I then um, really helped signal a couple of big London Underground lines, the Victoria Line, which is now 36 trains an hour, and the Jubilee Line. I was uh, did my part in those areas. Then I went to Australia, which in Melbourne they created a public transit authority along the lines of TfL, actually, and that was Public Transport Victoria. And I was uh, very, very pleased to be the CEO of that. And then I came back to run the Tube, which was just fantastic. You know, it's an, the iconic job if you're a, yeah. if you're a British person. It's an iconic job to run the tube. And then while I was running the tube, uh, which was going pretty well, actually, a project called Crossrail was under the auspices of the government and TfL, and it got into a lot of trouble. And Crossrail is a east-west railway, um, 42 kilometres. Um, it's, it's a metro. It's a brand-new metro line for London Underground. Adds 10% to the whole capacity of the, the the rail network in London, but it's a bit more like an S-Bahn or like you'd find in RER in Paris. You know, instead of a big train coming into a terminus, then you get into a little tube train. Crossrail was bringing from the east and west big suburban trains in on the classic net, network into a metro environment, just like RER in Paris or an S-Bahn in Munich, something like that. Very very novel in the UK. Um, like you said, biggest construction project in Europe and, and the sixth biggest construction project in the world, Crossrail. And in 2018, um, I was the client of Crossrail. You know, I was receiving it as the guy running the tube. And around, around kind of the spring of 2018, this project was to open at the end of 2018. And unfortunately, it, it got into some very well-publicized trouble. They, they thought they had about a year to go on the project. They thought we might be a little bit late. 
you know, transpired they were, they were actually three years late cool. and we had a real problem. And uh, so the, the project team, the organization called Crossrail Limited, which was a special purpose vehicle set up by the government and TfL, unfortunately needed new leadership. Um, so I guess I, <laughs> I found myself being the client of a railway that I was about to receive and run. I found myself overnight almost being the person going to, to finish it and deliver it. And that wow. was uh, three years ago. So uh, luckily we are nearer the end now. What but, a story, uh, Mark. That is something. Yeah. You know, that's happened. There's stuff like that happening all over the world, as you probably know. I mean, in America, there's been issues with a big rail system in Honolulu. that's taken a long time. And there's been big changes happening there. And a lot of these big projects take a while. My buddy Phil Verster that we talked about is overseeing some of the biggest construction projects in North America, in Toronto and Ontario. And he is very focused on making sure that all these contractors stay on, stay on task because it's easy uh, to slip. Uh, you know, I was overseeing a project called the Purple Line, which is the largest public-private partnership in America at the time, three or four years ago, building a 16-mile light rail line around Washington, D.C. And lawsuits and all these things happen, which slow things down. And these big capital projects, like the um, there's a high-speed rail project in California that's been dogged with, you know, delays and, and financial cost potential overruns. And so these big capital projects really need strong engineering leadership at the top, I think. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's brilliant that they got you, a guy with engineering experience, who, who was, uh, good, you know, the guy that was running it. So you kind of knew what you really needed. And what kind of skill sets have you brought to it to, um, to make it better? I mean, I think people would be interested to know what is it, because you're, everyone considers you a big success. I mean, you're already delivering right now on time, as promised, all these pieces that you were talking about after all these delays. What have you had to do to make it work better? I would say, I would well, first of all, Crossrail is not a PPP environment. There's lots of PPPs have gone wrong around the world, haven't they? But Crossrail was a state-sponsored project, yes. dual-funded by Transport for London and the government. So it was set up, and for years, for years, bear in mind the tunneling started in 2010, for years Crossrail was a great success. And I think the three big lessons, Paul, out of Crossrail are the first one is just the immensity of the system integration. So we, they really didn't understand the the effort of system integration. We've got the world's most complex signaling system here. We've got CBTC, GOA2, ATO in the middle, Siemens train guard system. We've got the ETCS, Alstom ETCS system on the national rail in the Heathrow Tunnel. And we've got, of course, the classic networks, you know, train protection systems, the legacy system. So... We've got this amazingly complex signaling system. We've also got an incredibly complex digital environment. This is probably Britain's first proper digital railway. It'll have few peers in the world. Everything is digitized in this railway. There's nothing analog in this railway. So number one lesson, Paul, was we, they, they just did not have the skill set of system integration. So we, we really brought a lot of people in who were more focused on system integration as an art and a, a thing to do. So the first lesson is make sure you modularize this as much as you can because, you know, trying to integrate something so complicated at the end when it became a bit discoordinated was a problem. So we've got a lot of technologists in, a lot of digital people. The, the second thing that kind of went wrong in Crossrail was they, they pinned they pinned everything on a certain end date. You know, they, they defined the end date in Crossrail around 2011 as the 9th of December 2018. 
and Finns. <laughs> oh, wow. So they yeah, defined them too soon, huh? Yeah, yeah. Famously, they, they you know they, they literally booked the Queen to um to come and open it. And for years, they were on time on budget. The problem is they they were re- a fixed ended produced some very strange behaviors, probably, and ma- made them lose sight of the whole. So the second thing we did was brought a lot more um, railway sort of people in terms of focus, people who could deal with uncertainty. And that, that's the key thing about Crossrail, highly uncertain situation. So try to plan in windows, try to plan in windows of time rather than become a slave to a certain end date. And that takes a certain kind of kind of skill set. And I guess the, 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 the third thing that's interesting in Crossrail is how you go about it. And how we've gone about it here is like a real spirit of transparency and everybody owning the whole. So although the operator was embedded in Crossrail for years, we've really created the environment for the operator to be right up front and in the front seat. And they were always here. You know, the operator was always part of Crossrail, the end operator, but they weren't particularly influential in in my view. So they're the three things we did. We brought system integration into it. You know, we made sure that we had program managers who knew how to deal with uncertainty, not fixed end debts. And then crucially for this audience, maybe, is we, we got the operator uh, in the front seat. And even then, it took us a while. And where we are right now is we are in trial running now. We're running eight trains an hour. We're about to step up to 12 trains an hour. And we aim to open this railway in the first half of next year. And, and we'll do that. You know, we'll get it as early in that window as we can. But once a project goes wrong like this, I'm sure you'd agree it's difficult to get it back in control. I'm sure you've seen that yourself. Yeah. I want to encourage our listeners, if you don't follow Mark Wilde on LinkedIn, you should follow him on LinkedIn as he posts up videos so you can kind of see what we're talking about today. There's a great video he just put up uh, this month showing the progress that's been made. And, and these stations are beautiful, stellar looking, you know, very futuristic, modern, but also um they, they're, they look comfortable uh, for the end user. Talk to us about that, about, uh, well, I guess one question, let me step back one question. Talk to us about the Elizabeth line. And yeah. and so Crossrail is building the Elizabeth line. Is that what it is? Yeah, the Elizabeth line. I mean, interesting, next year is uh, the Queen of England's 70th year on the throne. So right. maybe things are synchronizing. No, I mean, so did- I mean worked out just right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, well, first of all, in London, one of the problems in London, London has one of, one of the lowest rates of step-free access, accessibility for people with restricted mobility. The mind tube the only, Yeah, mind the gap. The, the yeah. tube only has 28% um, stations that are accessible from the street to the platform for people who maybe need help. Uh, you know, I think there's only Paris and Moscow worse than London. So <laughs> one of the key things about the Elizabeth Line, so if you think we've got a real, an existing railway in the West, an existing railway in the East, and we've built a bridge underneath London to connect two things together. And the railway itself, the Elizabeth Line, is, is 80 or 90 kilometres long, but the middle bit is, is about 20 kilometres. So one of the key things we've done, Paul, is we've built nine new stations and 22 kilometres of twin-bore tunnels under London but all of the stations end-to-end, all 50 or 60 stations will be step-free. So we've upgraded the classic network as well. So if you can, you can get on a train at Heathrow Airport and you will be in Canary Wharf, which is one of the financial districts of London, in 41 minutes. And that, that will happen step-free and fully accessible. So 
the Elizabeth line does two things really. It creates many more journey opportunities because suddenly you've got no interchange overhead at a mainline station to get on the tube. We've all been there, haven't we? Getting into a mainline terminus and getting onto the mass transit system here, seamless, frictionless, through to the centre of London. And the second thing it did is produce a great deal of accessibility. And out of that, um, the, the, the story of Crossrail is, in the Elizabeth Line, £42 billion of agglomerated benefits. £42 billion pounds is wow. the business. And we, of course, we're going to spend about nineteen billion. So we spent we spent about two or three billion more than our budget, about a twenty percent overrun. It's, it's it's it mean it matters particularly in these austere times, but it'll still produce forty two billion dollars of agglomerated benefit. And you know the pandemic. I'm sure you'll agree the pandemic's a transitory, a, a temporary thing really, in the ten of a hundred twenty year old tube line. So so that's the Elizabeth line. It's bringing two regions of England together, Southeast England together. It's creating many, many journey opportunities, fully accessible for people. And, you know, we see it a lot in Paris and a lot in Munich, like an S-Bahn or an RER. But it's the first time that Britain's had something like that. And that, that, that's pretty exciting. So let's, uh, we've talked about the past and the present. Now let's go to the future. Uh, so you're basically um, doing this in chunks of work and you're releasing like one station at a time back to TFL. Is that how you're doing it? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like a huge jigsaw piece. This, I mean, this is an immense digital asset. It's uh, 42 kilometers of tunnel, a huge tunnel ventilation system, the world's most complicated um, uh, signal system, full high platform screen doors throughout, um, or state of the art advanced uh, control center with condition based monitoring, uh, 10 shafts and portals that are, that are connected as well. So you've got this immense digital asset of jigsaw pieces coming together. So where we are at the moment, all of the tunnels and the rail systems are all handed over. It's a railway now, you know, connected from Paddington in the in the west or through the Stratford in the east. We have a railway connected and it's transitioned to the European interoperability standards. So a railway exists and we are now running eight trains, about seven to 12 trains an hour in trial running. The stations are going over one at a time. There are all of the surface stations. They are step-free access. The new lifts are all getting put in. They're nearly finished, actually. And in the central core, the iconic central core, we have nine new deep tube stations. All of them are nine, ten stories deep in the ground, wow. you know, 35 metres deep. And they're going over one at a time. And at the minute, we have uh, three of them handed over to TFL, London Underground, um, another three will go over the next six weeks. And really, by the end of the summer, all of the stations, apart from one at Bond Street in the West End, will be done. That will happen a little bit a little bit later. So the key thing for us, really, the critical path, is getting the software systems to the right level. Because although we can run uh, trial running, the software is really good. All the transitions work. The reliability is good. It's not good enough for customers. And I think that's another lesson, Paul, in, in this whole story of Crossrail, you almost got to have a stepping stone to, right, can you dynamically test it? You know, can, can you just test a train? Can you get a safety certificate from the signal system? Can you support trial running, which is kind of where we are now? And then the next step would be, okay, is it good enough for customers in its reliability? And I think one of the big mistakes Crossrail made was it didn't see that migration strategy of the software and convergence as a thing. And one of my friends, tells me all the time, 
no matter what business you're in, Mark, whether you're in London Underground, whether you're whether you're running a podcast, whether you're whether you're in a supermarket business, you're in the tech business now. You're in the tech business. And that's quite a profound shift, I think. Uh, and I think the big lesson from Crossrail is that we are now in a digital era and we've got to start thinking digital, i.e. convergence, configuration states, plateauing and you know, collaborative teams in the software, things that aerospace organizations do quite naturally. Um, not natural for railway people and transit people, but it, it, that, that's the future, I think. It's awesome. Well, speaking of the future, I mean, what do you think you'll do once this is all done? You got any ideas? Uh, yeah, because you say well, you, it should be done next year, right? Sometime next year, you'll have this whole thing wrapped yeah, up early, in 2022. Early, well, we're hoping for early in that window, but yeah, the first Good. half of 2020 is we'll, we'll open in there. I, I don't know, I was quite enjoying running the tube, really. I did enjoy running the tube, but they've recruited a fantastic guy to replace me, a guy called Andy Lord. You should have on here, really. He's from the aviation world. Okay. Um, Andy Lord's a tremendous person, so I've got no route back to the tube. So I'll need something else to do. Okay. I think well, what I'd like to do, I think okay. what I'd like to do, I'd like, right. to, I'd like to think about all of the lessons I've learned on Crossrail and how they spend a bit of time to distill the lessons so other people don't have to make the same mistake. Because this has yeah. been a tough, a tough gig, Paul. It's, it hasn't been easy for yeah. the people to make a visible a, a public failure and then rebuild it. It's not been easy. That would be wonderful, actually. You know, we just talked about. I just talked about all the failures or all the projects that have come into all these challenges. And uh, when you get into these massive capital projects, it would be great to have a template uh, that somebody has done successfully. So, Mark, I think that's your calling, brother. As when you're done this, you need to spend the next year traveling the world on the speaking circuit uh, to all the transit conferences and then write a book. The 10 things I, that I learned, Mark Wilde, Mark Wilde's 10 top lessons of what I learned building, something like that. Let me help you if you need any help. You know, I'm an author really? too. So I can help you put it together. Don't, don't even need to leave your bedroom. I could do it all from my bedroom in South London. <laughs> That's exactly right, man. Well, listen, this has been awesome. Is there anything else, you know, uh, before we wrap up that you'd like to tell our listeners, the tens of thousands of people around the world that work in the transit industry? I would say, I would say, Two things, really. I would think that iconic investments like Crossrail, don't be downhearted by the pandemic. And a lot of people will say ridership doesn't support building these iconic projects. But I, I would say that I don't subscribe to that. So keep building and keep ambitious. Uh, Crossrail's ambition is just incredible. And you know, in Britain, it'll be the global achievement of this century, actually. And I think staying at the front edge of that would be good. And the other thing I would say to everybody listening, that, that ethos of be conscious to the digital world. And just because you can connect something together doesn't mean to say it's useful. So they would be my two, two, two kind of things. But let's keep building these projects. Yes. Because I'm sure people, they, um, they create wealth for the construction industries, the engineers, technologists get at the cutting edge, and uh, they'll be useful for decades, hundreds of years, won't they, will have the Elizabeth line. And I'd hate us to give up on these iconic projects. Very good. Well, Mark Wild, thank you so much for being our guest today and sharing with us how to turn a major capital project around and bring it in 
on time for the queen's 70th year on the throne. We'd all love to see that. I hope I can be over there at some point next year when traveling's allowed again and visit again. Been over there several times and just love what you all do there. You know, uh, I've spent time with a lot of the folks that, you know, um, Shashi Verma and all your, all your top-notch people you have at TFL. You just have an amazing team there. Uh, it's so exciting to have you on the show. And I think you're going to uh, have great success next year. I hope the queen knights you when it's all done. <laughs> that might be going a bit far, but thanks, Paul. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. I'd like to thank our guest, Mr. Mark Wilde of Crossrail UK, for his amazing insights on what it takes to take a project that's on the rocks and bring it to a successful conclusion. Next week, we have Mr. Dimas Barrera of Sindondionibus talking about the bus network in Brazil. And until next week, ride safe and ride happy. <laughs>